0: Turn with me, please, to the 24th chapter, the Gospel of Matthew, the great Olivet Discourse. The Lord Jesus Christ had, of course, left Jerusalem and the temple and left it desolate, as he said, and then he and his disciples went to the Mount of Olives where he would deliver this great discourse, this prophetic discourse of our Lord. He warned them that as they had asked him when he would come, when the temple would be destroyed, when also he would come as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the King, when that would take place, he told them not to be deceived, not to be misled by the signs of nation against nation and wars and so forth and calamities in the world. Warned them that they would be persecuted, that they would suffer for his namesake, and told them that the one thing that would take place before he comes again the second time would be the universal preaching of the gospel to all nations. He shall gather all of his elect scattered in every nation in the world before he comes. This morning, we look into Matthew chapter 24. We're going to read verses 22 through 31. Our text, particularly for exposition, will be verses 15 through 22. But we read from 15 through 31. Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse... Fifteen. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place whoso readeth let him understand then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house There should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the west and shineth even unto the east, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather to gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Shortly before this time, the Lord's disciples heard him declare to the Jewish nation, your house is left unto you desolate, because he who is rejected by them He who was the true king, Messiah, who was the very reason for that temple, had left it. He was the whole reason that temple came into being. He was the whole reason for the tabernacle of old and the temple of old, and its ceremonies and what it pointed to and its sacrifices. But it was not only that he bodily left the temple, he left it emptied then, Its purpose is over, complete. Then he declared that they would not see him again until the time would come when they would say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, an acknowledgment of him as the true Messiah, as the Christ and Lord indeed. But it was after he had declared that not only would the temple be deserted, it was test it was destined to absolute destruction. Not one stone, as he said, would be left upon another. Then they framed their question, or if you please questions. It's all connected together in verse three of Matthew chapter twenty four. Tell us when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? and of the end of the world, or, if you please, the consummation of the age. They were likely thinking in Jewish terms. Of course, the Jewish Talmud taught that the coming of the Messiah would close, quote, this age and bring in, quote, the coming age, which would be the arrival, the presence, and the reign of Messiah as the King of Israel. They obviously then associated his coming again with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But the Lord's extensive answer involving the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, at the same time, it projects to the end of the whole present world order, to his second appearing, when he shall be present indeed, arrive and be present, or his parousia. His second coming. And then, though the destruction of Jerusalem foreshadows all at the same time the consummation of all things, there are places where these things are obviously dealt with separately. Hard to see where one is simply a foreshadowment. This is the case in our passage. For instance, we shall find that verse 15 and following obviously, applies to that destruction of Jerusalem that would take place in 70 A.D. While it would be very difficult to limit his universal appearing to that destruction, as in verses 29 and 30, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. We shall deal with that, Lord willing, in our next message in this Olivet Discourse. We shall find that we're going to be looking into the prophets, not the world or or the way things are in the universe, but the prophets and how they use these things in their writings. The Lord is the prophet of the prophets. And, of course, he's not teaching something that differs from what was taught, but we're not getting into that today. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We know all the tribes of the earth didn't mourn at the destruction of Jerusalem. But there will be a great change thereafter. There will come worldwide mourning when he appears the second time. John wrote about that on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 1 verse 7. Every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. The point for us is that we now have the unmistakable record of history showing us the perfect fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy in the destruction of Jerusalem that he gave 40 years before that destruction would come. And it should put a very solemn Note in our hearts a seriousness that as he has forewarned and as he so promised to come again to the eternal blessedness of his own and the eternal judgment of the world, so shall it be. The warnings apply to us, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh we look into our passage and consider the warning to immediately flee Jerusalem as soon as they would behold what he called the abomination of desolation. In verses 15 through 22, we'll read this passage again. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time known, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Well, learn something when you read Scripture. Look and see where it interprets itself. We're charged, as in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. This is our authority. We look to the scriptures. We see what is taught in the scriptures. And we make our application from the word of God, not simply from some system that man has devised. In Luke's parallel passage, in Luke chapter 21, particularly in verse 20, we learn that this will take place when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. We know, of course, to be the armies of Rome that would bring the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Lord tells His own, when you see Jerusalem, Compassed about with armies, then the desolation is near. Then he tells them flee. So we know that he's talking about something associated with the armies of Rome that would destroy the city of Jerusalem. The abomination is that in the the case which would be associated with false gods, idols. That's what abomination is used for when it's associated with that which is falsely concerning God or false gods. Anything or any image that takes the place of or distorts the knowledge and the worship of the one true God, that is abominable sacrilege, if you please. And we learn from history what this abomination was. Prophecy. Prophecy. Like history, sometimes has more than one fulfillment, of course, as we know, even as we find it here in the Olivet Discourse. Daniel the prophet had prophesied of a coming abomination that maketh desolate. Well, you can turn back to Daniel if you can find that very quickly. And uh, in the book of Daniel, you'll find in... uh, Chapter 10 of Daniel and verse 31. I'll give you about two seconds to find it. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 31. Wait a minute. I must have the, maybe I've got the wrong, I've got the wrong reference written down. Uh, Well, chapter 12, verse 11. In chapter 12, verse 11. And from that time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Now this prophecy had what we might call a preliminary fulfillment in the interbiblical period, in the time between Malachi and Matthew, in that period when divine communication had ceased until the coming of John the Baptist. In that preliminary period, there was a man, a Greek Hellenistic king, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. What he did during that time was to desecrate the temple, the house of God. He erected over the altar of burnt offering a heathen altar, a desecration. But Daniel... Of course, not only prophesied of that, he prophesied of a desolation that would come after the coming of the Messiah. You're going to have to follow me. If you're going to be part of this ministry, it requires something. It requires an entrance into the study, and it's not something that is going to be lazily done. You have to follow it, and follow it very carefully. So again, Daniel had also prophesied of the desolation, That would come, but would come after Messiah would come. When he would be, as he says in Daniel 9, cut off, but not for himself. When he would come to die for the sins of his people. This would involve afterward an overspreading of abominations, as in Daniel chapter 9. And in verses 26 and 27. The 70-week prophecy, which 490 years. It's an amazing prophecy. We're not going to go into this prophecy. But it brings us all the way to the coming of Messiah. his being cut off in this last week of this year and uh, uh, the, this period and what would happen thereafter. So in Daniel chapter 9 in verses 26 and 27, And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know that to be Titus, the Roman general. And the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with money, many for one week, And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. That's exactly what happened when Christ came and offered himself as the one sacrifice that did away with all Old Testament sacrifices. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. We don't have time. We'd keep you here way too long if we tried to expound these prophecies, but I bring it in because it has reference to what the Lord is speaking of, the abomination of desolation. The the Lord himself forewarns believers to flee the city of Jerusalem and Judea immediately upon seeing this abomination because it would quickly be followed by the destruction of the city. When the Roman army came to Jerusalem, They would come bearing standards before their armies. That standard had a large brazen eagle on the top of it. Below that eagle was a bust of Caesar commanded to be worshipped. He was commanded to be worshipped as a god. This would be an abomination to the Jews. The desolation would be brought by the Roman army. This judgment, this horrendous judgment that would come on Jerusalem was not for believers. As far as we know, no believer would perish in that. It was not for them. It was for those who cried, we will not have this man to reign over us. And his blood be on us and on our children. That's horrendous what they said. And those who would finally cry, crucify him. Spurgeon rightly observed, Never did any other people invoke such an awful curse upon themselves. And upon no other nation did such a judgment ever fall. We can go into what happened. We mentioned last time they ran out of wood, crucifying the Jews. The Jews turned on each other. They killed each other. There was terrible famine. Many of them were sold into slavery for next to nothing, valueless. It's incredible what happened. Much, much more. In Jerusalem, in 70 A.D. Before the awful judgment of the world, that shall come. It is coming. Before the awful judgment of the world, when, as in chapter 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come, in his glory and be seated upon the throne of his glory, all of his own will be delivered, saved, shall be saf- safely gathered unto him. But then it'll be too late for sinners. Too late. That's a horrible word, isn't it? Too late for sinners then. Too late to call upon him in faith. Rather, as we read in Revelation chapter 6, call upon the rocks and the hills to, quote, hide us from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Blessed are those Blessed those who before fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before them. Those who before fled as poor, needy sinners to Christ alone to believe the gospel they heard. Only those who before by sovereign grace have counted the cost, forsaken the world, and all in it, to believe, to come and follow Christ. Only they shall be in that company that shall escape what the scriptures call the wrath to come. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. Then the compassionate heart of the Lord, ever merciful toward his own, is concerned with the special difficulty of that flight from Jerusalem, that it would be for pregnant women and for those who were nursing infants and for the greater difficulty that would bring if it was on the Sabbath day or in the winter. You see, they would be fleeing on foot. Winter would be especially difficult. And the traditional Sabbath, with its travel restrictions, would be a hindrance as well. And the hardships would be especially hard on women. You'll find that the Lord Jesus Christ was especially merciful to women. It's important to note that Jewish believers, of course, continued to observe the ceremonial and the civil aspects of the law until the city and the temple were destroyed. They were kind of intertwined with Judaism until then. The destruction of Jerusalem was necessary to bring a separation, a separation of Christianity from Judaism, and show it to be distinct from it and eventually establish the faith of Christ and the kingdom of God worldwide, made up of the regenerate from both Jew and Gentile, making up a new Israel or a new covenant Israel. What would take place, what would be shaken completely, would be the old order, and the new would emerge. By the way, if you want to look into Hebrews chapter 12, you'll find it there. You'll find it taught in this epistle that was written first to Hebrew Christians. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, in verses 25 through 29, Hebrews chapter 12, Beginning of verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, speaking of Moses, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, our Lord himself. Whose voice then shook the earth. When we go further in our study, we're going to deal with what shaking means in prophetic scripture. In various prophecies. Well, we'll give you a hint, maybe more than a hint. It's the complete removal of an old order and the establishment of a new order. It is with the figures of the sun, the moon, the stars, and so forth, and they're, they're, the falling to the earth sometimes, of course, which we know in the other prophets, they have a fulfillment already taken place and a final fulfillment, of course, with the coming of Christ, but I hope that'll whet your appetite. But we're going to look into the Scripture. our teaching only the scripture for our teaching this shaking whose voice then shook the earth but now he hath promised saying yet once more drawing from the prophecy of haggai yet once more not two more not three more once more i shake not the earth only but also heaven and this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which remain cannot be shaken. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. What God established in Christianity, the biblical Christianity, was that which would be final only once more in that regard. The shaking came. But we take special note that the Lord instructed believers to pray that their flight would not have to be in the winter or on the sabbath day we read in matthew chapter 24 and in verse 20 but pray pray that your flight be not in the winter nor on the sabbath day the lord knew exactly the time that this tribulation would come to Jerusalem. He knew exactly the time, this trouble, that would be the worst ever that hit a city in the world. He knew when it would come. Yet he instructs his own to pray. He tells them to pray. We are to pray. He ordained it. It's part of his ordination he would have us know that he's able to give us help and relief in the most difficult of times, is he not? If we by faith make use of what he has taught us, we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Scripture is clear about something. God who is sovereign over all, he who predestines all things according to his own will, Ephesians chapter 1, as we're taught. God ordained prayer. He is pleased to work through prayer. And it is then only lack of faith that would neglect it in the midst of great trouble. So uh, Matthew Henry Commentary. I like to read him. He's very practical. Christ bidding them to pray for this favor intimates his purpose of granting it to them. I thought that was a good comment. If he teaches us to pray, we believe what he says and we call upon him. Biblically, we seek the will of God and call upon him. He will answer. He says he will. Indeed. Then what great care the Lord has for his own elect. What great care for those chosen and given to him by the Father. Sinners. Sinners that were no more worthy than those who would be destroyed in themselves. And yet the objects of an amazing grace. Those were called to be saints. So he says in Matthew 24 and verses 21 and 22. For then shall be great tribulation. Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days be shortened. There should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. That's quite a word. That is an incredible word. For the elect's sake, except for the elect's sake, there would have been total annihilation. Except for the elect's sake, all would have been destroyed, including them. That destruction was so vast, so devastating, so terrible, that had it been continued, it would have expanded. Had it not been stopped by the sovereign providence of the Lord Himself, it would have expanded until the whole Jewish race, including Jewish believers, had been destroyed. But they fled. They were given instruction. For the elect's sake, even the remnant chosen from among the Jews, as Mark chapter 13, verse 20, except that the Lord has shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. The Lord stopped the war. He stopped it from expanding to where his own were. the Jewish Christians were kept safe during that horrendous time. The comment of Spurgeon will apply here. Thus has it been often since those days. And for the sake of his elect, the Lord has withheld many judgments and shortened others. The ungodly owe to the godly more than they know and would care to own. For the remainder of this message, I want us to turn our attention to an extremely important truth that is clearly revealed in the Word of God. Several times over in this discourse, the Lord refers to those who belong to Him, who know Him, who believe who follow him as the elect. In chapter 24 and in verse 22, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And verse 24, for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. In verse 31, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The scriptures teach clearly that not one of his elect shall perish. Not a single one for whom he effectively shed his blood and cried, It is finished. None of them shall perish. It's one of the most assuring and comforting truths a genuine believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ can embrace. The elect are referred to in Scripture as here, simply the elect. Other places, the elect of God. Other places, the election of grace. And are said to be chosen to salvation. That's why in 2 Thessalonians chapter chapter 2, when speaking of the great apostasy that would come when some would be confirmed in unbelief, Paul writes, we're bound to give thanks always to you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The elect are in this Olivet Discourse obviously shown to be the very special objects of the Lord's care. Were they the chosen of God because they were better than those who perished? Were they by nature any better whatsoever from those who perished? Did they have some personal righteousness? Did they do something good? Or because they had some ability by nature to savingly believe on Christ? that why they were chosen that's what the world and even religion would say reminds me of the sound of music when maria cries i must have done something good to get well that's pretty much the the sentiment of religion apart from truth The point is, did God choose them because of something good he saw in them that they had, that others didn't have? Actually, it is taught in the very word of God, it could not be plainer taught, that this election took place long before the chosen had done anything whatsoever either good or bad. It took place before God ever said, let there be light. It took place in eternity, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. He says, he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And it's all only to the praise of the glory of his grace. I don't comprehend fully. I can't comprehend how God would choose a wretch like me. A sinner, unworthy of anything good from him. No better, worse feeling than many in the world. But his election is incredible. It proceeds from his will. It does not respect who we are, what we've done, or what we could do. It is sovereign election taught clearly. In the case of Isaac and Esau, it's even emphasized... You look in Romans 9. If you look into Romans chapter 9 and verses 9 through 13. Talking about offense, John, this truth offends many religionists. But yet it's clearly taught in the Word of God. In Romans chapter 9 and verses 9 through 13. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Well, you have to struggle with that. I remember my dear friend Roger Lacking telling me that Ralph Barnard, an old evangelist, had a great impact upon him. He uh, was in his hotel room evidently he was speaking where roger's dad was a pastor also was pastoring at the time and roger was a very young man he was in uh, college at the time and he and a friend from the church went to talk with Ralph barnard they'd heard this some of these things they'd never been taught them never saw them opened the door, said Rolf came to the door with tears in his eyes and his Bible open. They said, something's real. (laughs) This man's real. They opened Romans 9 and they said, uh, Rolf, tell us, teach us, what is here? What is this? What he said to them was simply, bow. Bow. This is the word of God, bow. What you read here is true, bow. That had a great impact upon them. And I can see why. They were struggling with it. Roger became, I guess, my dearest friend in the ministry. And the one through whom God taught me the wonderful doctrines of grace. Far from having anything whatsoever good toward God. It's absolutely the opposite. You remember what Paul taught in Romans 3? What then are we better than they? No and no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. draws from Psalm 14. They are all gone out of the way. None, none that doeth good. No, not one member of Adam's fallen race. Not one doeth good and seek of God. There was absolutely nothing better in the elect than in anyone else born in sin So that God, and God only, must do all the saving. All of it. Salvation is of the Lord. Or else the sinner remains in sin and dies in that condition. That's why that passage is so important in Ephesians 2. You hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's a sovereign act of God in giving regeneration, new life. You hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You tell me what a dead person can do. Bob and Carol own two funeral homes. Do you ever see a dead person ever get out of the casket? Did they ever wave and say Hi, Carol? What would you have done if they did? But anyway, that's no. A dead person can do absolutely nothing. Nothing. Can make no move toward the true knowledge of God. Can have no real knowledge from religious. But they're dead. Dead in sins and trespasses, dead toward God, alive toward the world, alive toward the flesh, alive toward pleasures in this world, but no knowledge of God in truth, you hath they quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation. We all lived in this same realm in time past. In the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. There was no difference. Where'd it come from? Where'd the difference come from? But God. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he hath loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you're saved. Then if by God's grace alone, sovereign grace, free grace, as a vile sinner, if you've seen the Lord Jesus Christ alone as the only one who could save you from sin, And your heart has been drawn and you've called upon him and you've come to him. And you rejoice that he promised to receive you. Your salvation then can only be to the praise of the glory of his grace. You never would have had it not been his sovereign will. He loved you with an everlasting love, chose you before the world began, called you by His gospel, gave you life that you did not deserve. One of these days, somebody's going to say amen. All, not to your praise, to the praise of the glory of His grace. You see, your salvation, the reason for your salvation is God's free will, not yours. The elect were chosen before the world began, but it was a choosing unto salvation. Justification didn't come in eternity. Justification comes in time. Chosen to it. Unto salvation. But election is not salvation. Election is unto salvation. That's an important distinction. To be made known, and is known in scripture. Salvation comes in the course of time. Yes, that faith comes from God. Yes, it was purposed from before the world began but no one is saved except those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life he that believeth not the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abideth on him you come to christ as a poor and needy sinner you come unworthy You come bringing nothing. You don't have anything to bring. You come conscious of your one true need to be delivered, to be made right with God, fully knowing that He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only one who can save you. Christ, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. You trust Him. You trust Him because you hear and believe that He died in the sinner's place. In the sinner's stead. You rest in the great truth that indeed, looking to Him, trusting Him, you accept that your sins have been forever put away by the death of His cross. And you rest in a love that cannot be denied because God has poured it out into your heart. God did that by his Holy Spirit. As we're taught clearly in Romans and chapter chapter 5 of Romans. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet for adventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I don't ever want to get over that. How about you? I don't want to ever get over that the wondrousness of what God has done for a sinner like me, as wretched or more wretched than my fellows, and calling me by His grace. What a wondrous salvation. And then how blessed when you come to know that this was all and only God's purpose. It was His purpose of grace That alone toward you. If you know Christ, if by grace you've come broken to receive Him as your Lord and bow before Him as the Sovereign Savior. Because God purposed it. Because God loved you before ever you were able to utter a word or even were in your mother's womb. How blessed when you receive the gift of God's grace in His Son, and even the gift of faith to believe on Him. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then through Christ. No longer do you live unto yourself. If you live unto yourself, you've never been brought to Him. No longer do you live unto yourself. You live unto Him who died for you and rose again from the dead and now lives to secure your salvation, your eternal salvation forever. It's in His hands. I'm glad. If it were in my hands for a minute, I'd make a mess of it. It's in his hands. Then, as the elect Jews were kept safe, when the wrath of God was poured out upon Jerusalem, you'll be safe when he comes to judge the world. And he will come to judge the world in righteousness. may have been those in Jerusalem who thought, well, things are going along pretty good all these 40 years. Nothing really has changed. Peter says there will be those scoffers when Christ comes the second time. And Where is his coming? But he will. He's coming. And he's coming to judgment upon the earth, this world. He's also coming to redeem, to deliver those redeemed by his blood so that for those who are in christ that day is no longer to be feared because at the same time he comes for you and will gather you with all of the redeemed unto himself there will never be a separation from him ever so shall we ever be with the lord are you looking forward to that Are you looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ? At that day, at that day when He is revealed in glory, you'll join the chorus of all the saints to praise, worship, glorify Him who loved you, who wanted you in spite of your sinfulness, And cry, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Have you heard? Do you believe? Then give God all the glory and take none unto yourself.